0: Hey, welcome everyone. You're listening to Daniel here on The Deerport. Today we get an opportunity to talk about policing, the history of policing, specifically as it relates to the current mass movements. To hold police accountable for their actions of violence on communities that historically have been marginalized, historian David Chavez joins us online to give us some history context as well as alternative perspectives on how to address the issue of police violence. Before we begin, David, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please?
1: Yeah. So um, my name is David Chavez. I'm a um, currently a PhD candidate. Um, at UCR, in the history department, I'm focusing uh, my research and scholarship focuses on the history of youth policing in the city of LA. I'm also a former community organizer um, in in Los Angeles, dealing with issues around uh, prisons and policing, criminal justice issues, and and uh, yeah, I'm also a parent, uh, father father of two. So that's me.
0: David, I thank you for you know sharing your time with us today. I wanted to get a opportunity to talk to you mainly because of that like what you just stated uh your role as an academic uh really focuses on policing and youth and brings forward a perspective that i think um a lot of us could appreciate you know given the present moment i think me like everyone else is keeping track of the way that the movement to hold uh police accountable is not new but i think has taken a different expression uh i feel that it's a much more immediate and not just immediate uh a little a little bit louder i, I i'm kind of being careful with my words here but that that people that weren't included or or chose not to be included in the previous conversations uh, are now um, make it—it's it, almost impossible not to hear. Is what I'm trying to say because what I think of in terms of the conversation around policing, as it is articulated by Black and Brown communities, the first major recordings—I think the Black Panther, the Brown Berets—on um, record, you know, on video—are saying we have been experiencing police brutality as standard operating operating procedure. And we are no longer going to take that. And, you know, that's something that, you know, is like 40, 50 years old. And then when I was a little kid and growing up in L.A. in the 80s, we had that conversation. We had conversations of rallying around mothers, fathers, cousins that had lost a loved one due to police violence. And it never stopped. So what I'm kind of thinking about is this, that like, for a lot of us, we've been talking about this for a long time. And I, for one, am, and my heart is fatigued. Uh, I'm not fatigued Mm -hmm. in in the conversation. I think we we still have to keep talking about it if we're going to get somewhere different. But it feels, it feels that like a lot of us are just tired, you know? And one of the things that I, I was hoping we could start today's talk about is this, like, how do you approach this conversation? Because what I've been getting, I've been getting a lot more resistance, very minimal tolerance to engage in a very thorough, critical conversation about policing, the role of Mm -hmm. policing in our society. And Mm -hmm. just that out of sincere curiosity, like how do you deal with this topic?
1: I think first is kind of how you, how you stated it, right? Historically that the, Movement or the the demand, the call to hold police accountable for, for acts of violence, has been one angle that has been going on in this country for a very long time, going back to uh, holding um, police accountable for riots that they started, like in the labor movement in the late 19th century, going back to like the Haymarket massacre in Chicago, um, where union leaders and and folks, uh, socialists and communists and anarchists were were you know demanding. Uh, demanding things uh, having to do with um, access to you know dignity in the workplace and being trampled on by la- by law enforcement you know at, at the behest of bosses and companies and you know demanding justice for their for their martyrs as they called them at the time um the haymarket martyrs and you you, you then kind of go up into the twentieth century and begin the twentieth century and you begin to see organizations calling um, specifically black organizations calling for um, an end to um, terror by law enforcement as they they stood by in in, in um, moments of of mass uh, racial violence um, against communities like uh, the the massacre in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, the the burning of Black Wall Street, and uh, the red, what was called Red Summer in the in the late 19 teens. Uh, I believe it was either 1917 or 1919, but during the during that period, and and then kind of continuing on where where I see um, it's going up a couple of different decades to the, um, the Civil Rights Congress, an organization, um, um, a black organization started by, by, by um, lawyers and, and attorneys and, and other social um, uh, civil rights organizations and also uh, um, union organizers and calling police violence in the 1950s and 1951, in particular, actually petitioning the UN to say policing, is a part of a, as part of genocide that's happening against black peoples in the US. So putting it on, on those terms. So not even about accountability, but about ending genocide, right? And, and having that as a, as a beginning conversation start that, uh, that was happening as, as they wrote the, the drafters of this petition to the UN, uh, which was blocked by the United States, by the way, uh, during the middle of the cold war, right? The United States was very much about trying to stop people like Paul Robeson, uh, W.B. Du Bois and others talking about the horrors of the South and of the North, really, too. And um, they're happy in the U.S., in a supposed free country against, you know, the Soviet bloc, that, that Jim Crow apartheid was, was being done at the hands of the state, not just these individuals, but at the state level by law enforcement. And calling what they said, one of the things that they said was that, um, that before, um, according to them, right before in the 1920s and 30s, the lynchings were done with those who would wear the white robe. Now they're being done by people with a badge and a gun. Um, and so they documented these cases, and then yeah, they were picked up by folks. You're right, like the the Black Panther Party for Self Defense later on, uh, who called for community control of the police, right? That they should actually have uh, be accountable to the community that they have. That's kind of where the shift comes, for This idea of accountability. Um, but yeah, there hasn't been a moment I would argue in U.S. history where law enforcement hasn't been in, at the central part of state repression or of state governance, um, having to again, like I was kind of saying, being on the being either supporting capital through um, trying to put down strikes in the North and in the Midwest, um, through this history of, um, which is well documented of slave catchers, um, being some of the first deputized law enforcement um, in the States. And then also with vigilante groups here in the Southwest, particularly targeting people, uh, Mexicans, um, and other people and other indigenous people too, here in the Southwest too, starting in the, uh, right after in the beginning of conquest with the with the takeover of Texas and, the 18 the 1830s. So that's one thing is, is to say that it's that this the debates that are happening is not new. That people just didn't it's not trendy. In fact, to 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 be to be putting up the issue of police violence, it's in fact historical. It's picking up the 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 reins of history and the reins of movement that people have come before us to pull law enforcement accountable. Um, Too is that we're really at a moment where there is a growing consensus that that something has to be done with law enforcement, that it's, 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 unexcus- it's inexcusable that in um, the richest country in the world, uh, is kind of like a liberal perspective, that in the richest country of the world, when it has freedom and democracy, that nearly a thousand people are, are gunned down or brutalized or killed or lynched by law enforcement in this country. So that's becoming like a popular narrative. And that's like, again, kind of like the liberal narrative of like, what, you know, it shouldn't be happening in our country. But then if we take that lens out even bigger and look at um, folks doing critical work on, on law enforcement or policing or what we call the prison industrial complex, people like Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Dylan Rodriguez, who's at UCR, um, other folks um, in, uh, in academia and also in the community, we see that, you know, in a, in a country that has uh, ordained itself, the police of the world with the Monroe Doctrine, going back to... Uh, the 19th century, the early 19th century, and has put a military bases, and, and, you know, me and you, we've lived through the war on terror, that's, you know, we grew up in the war on terror, that's, that's uh, uh, what we've known, that, that the U.S. has been a world, world police force, that, that it should, it should be understood that the, the fight is not only about police accountability, but it's about shifting, create a new paradigm for how this, for how this country is, or how the nation state even is, and that, that in its current formation as a, as an empire, that, These are the, this is the blowback or these are, you know, as Malcolm X would, would, you know, famously said, chickens coming home to roost. That when you're, when you're creating terror abroad, policing and doing things like uh, using flashbang grenades, door knock, uh, -knock, no-knock raids of people's homes in Afghanistan and Iraq, using drones and other technology, uh, we see those things replicated right here at the, at the U.S.-Mexico border uh, with drone technology. Uh, We see that being used in, in housing projects and also low-income communities um, of no-knocks, um, using flashbang grenades, and that, that have been really crafted here since um, since the post-World War II era. So, um, so yeah, I think there's uh, there's like there's these kind of like tracks to look at it, and it's it's come to this bubbling point where something needs to be done, and it's it's become more palatable because it's just so overwhelming. I think social media has a lot to do with it. That when organizations in the past have had to say we need to hold the police accountable for the murder of you know Amadou Diallo, for example, by the NYPD. It was always on the periphery on the fringe because you know people could you know they could wash it away we could put it away uh, because there wasn't you know this um, in your face and now it's just everywhere and um with social media things are this thing of going viral which you know we should interrogate too but when things go viral it just becomes very commonplace and you have um major magazines and major uh uh major publications like teen vogue for example doing a ton of exposés around police violence um, and, and, and other in other places too. So you have um, you have you have this kind of fomenting, uh, but that's also something to to kind of um, yeah to, uh, But at the same time, you have the backlash against it, where people are getting really entrenched into the quote unquote "blue lives matter" uh, kind of viewpoint and really soaking in the propaganda, as some people have called it, um, that we are inundated with you know daily with uh, all the shows that valorize law enforcement uh, that valorize um, um, even corrupt cops, you know, being valorized that they got the job done, you know, they did those things. So we shouldn't, we should, uh, because on the other side of that, right. Where they're doing that, they're also saying it's a most, it's the, it's a dangerous place. There's guns, there's murderers, there's drug dealers. The president, for example, has been, you know, and he's not the first administration to do this, but really focus on MS-13 is coming to kill you. There's these terrorists that are, um, you know, that are lurking in the shadows. So when you have that, that type of, um, um, that type of worldview inundated on our on also using those same means of communication is there's a lot of pushback too, where people really start to draw the line in the sand about, uh, about um, law enforcement.
0: I think that part of the conversation of why this subject is so different or why this subject is so difficult to even engage in the conversation has to do with something that you referenced toward the end Um of your review of just how long we've been dealing with this issue of questioning the extent of police violence upon our communities. Because I think there's something very fundamentally different in the respective insulated world you happen to live in, because some people really do feel very protected by the police. There's this sense of appreciation, there's sense of, I'm going to say hero worship because I just want to be very blunt in what I feel, but I don't think it's really appropriate to be that extreme. But they do create some type of hero status to that job. And um, while others, it's not that they hate cops, that would be too easy to to discuss it. It's that the reality that they have lived in does not permit them to deny the reality of the violence that comes at the hands of police so it's hard to be romantic about uh, an institution a practice people that are dressed a certain way when you fear them you know and i think that's part of the Divide that many of us are experiencing because you mentioned uh, like this growing phrase, Blue Lives Matter, Mm -hmm. as a movement that comes about as a direct counter to Black Lives Matter. And Mm -hmm. I feel that it is uh, it's just it's unfortunate that they're even in the same breath because they're not at all related you know, so that some people will talk about the way that for every time that a a police officer shoots uh, someone and kills them, and it's a question where that was a justifiable killing, they will say, well, let's talk about how many police officers have died. And I think that that's what is frustrating for me, because I don't see them as the same conversation. They're not inverse of one another. They're, completely different and more than anything um it silences the fact that for every time a police officer is killed in 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 their job there are parameters to address that killing like they're protected by the very legal system so that that person who kills them is going to be looked for prosecuted you know and if found guilty put in prison there's a there's accountability there's a whole procedure and for every time that we talk about a police killing someone in this in the community we find ourselves begging that same legal system to use the same procedures to hold the police accountable so that's why i find it so frustrating to think about like this blue lives matter as a um extension or a counter to black lives matter i find that um it it's it's taking me up somewhere i don't want to go like like if i have to if i have to engage in the talk about police officers losing their lives i don't want it to be related to the black lives matter movement that's like a whole different talk but i think as you mentioned it has been hijacked so a lot of people do not want to talk about a police uh force that injures community members and it doesn't it doesn't treat all community members equally so that if you happen to be a wealthy community a gated community you hire your own private security and if you happen to be a low-income community you have the police department but that same police department doesn't treat you as if they're there to protect you it is looking at you as someone that they are hostile toward and I wonder if this conversation can also connect to the ways that we have historically seen the role of police in this, in different communities one of them being like the the racialized divide so that the police force for black and brown communities were an occupying control force and this has been articulated by many so I'm paraphrasing but I also genuinely feel that that was my experience. I never felt that they were there to protect me for too many reasons. One is that they made me feel that I was a target. And second, by very practical reasons, they really weren't so that if we, if there was an emergency and we called them, they never came or came super Mm -hmm. late. Uh, And then when they did come, we were scared that they were going to hurt us. So that if you happen to call the police you knew that you were risking injury as you were searching for help, you know? Mm. And that reminds me of what you talked about. Like, what is the history of police is as like these early uh, slave patrols? That the police, the very badge is very much that same extension of that star that the slave patrol deputies carried. So for a lot of Black and brown people, Native people, we saw those badges and we knew what it meant. It meant that we were going to get injured and i find that as we talk about the role of police in society today and we start to imagine a difference a a modification at least if not a complete um, disbanding of it to create something different um, we have to return back to the history and i think that's what what i what i meant when i asked you how do you talk about this because i am finding myself stuck frustrated because i'm unable to really have these talks i mean i find myself kind of just saying like this police are all bad or police are all good and there's nothing that i can do with that you know
1: so i'm seeing like kind of three three pieces to talk about so first i want to talk uh, about the occupying force the the, like which i think is a a perfect way to articulate how many people currently feel um especially in impoverished communities um in, in segregated communities throughout the United States those that have been abandoned as people like like I already mentioned Ruth Wilson Gilmore and others who look at you know state abandonment um, in one sense of being abandoned from uh, by um, by the move of like finance capital into the public sector or from away from the public sector into uh, into uh, into the commercial sector which means uh, the lowering of uh um, social support networks of education and all this that's been happening with the, uh, you know, the neoliberal project starting in the in the late 70s um, as a backlash, really, to um, as as many as said uh, people like is it David Harvey? I forget his first name, but a uh, uh, person who writes about neoliberalism and has talked about this too and uh, and yeah, the the occupying forces is, is definitely like a perfect way to to look at it. And it's, it's really this kind of felt experience, as lived the experience that people have. And, it's, and you're right, like you have it in both senses where, where law enforcement was seen as, you know, not seen, but actually felt and physically harassed and hurting folks. And, and, and really in, 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 the, in the urban centers, especially like Southern California, was very much the, the, the force that was meant to, to divide and keep segregated communities the way they were, is to keep to keep communities disciplined to not to not break the color line of, of Jim Crow segregation um, up until you know up, up until the, late, until the late 20th century, and the idea of to the um, tying it directly to slave patrols, and yeah, you're right, using the stars. And what's also important to note is that in the history of slave patrols is that um, that laws that were began to be created. Great. the first patrols actually also deputized the entire white community, the free white community um, in, the, in the South place like South Carolina um, in, um, in his book, uh, which is entitled "Slave Patrols, um, which looks at this in the, in the 17th century. So it's doing this two things that not only is it law enforcement comes from um, the creation of deputized individuals to be responsible to return chattel property back to slavers, um, and also to, to to police freed blacks as well and ensure that they were or, or, or blacks who were under chattel to not to not be um, organizing because of the threat of um, of rebellion right under the threat of rebellion. Um, but number two, it deputized the entire white population as well to be responsible for this that they had to act as as good citizen bystanders to actually enforce these codes, this kind of social wage that Du Bois talks about for whiteness right like how how could you get these two groups of white classes to be together, the, the wealthy slavers and, the, and the, 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 the majority, you know, the 70, 80% majority of, of white folks in the South who were poor whites, poor tenant farmers themselves, um, or, or like small manufacturers or, you know, whatever, tr- craftsmen and so forth. How would you get them to be involved in this? Well, you deputize them. You have them have this responsibility to say, you know, that you are gonna be part of this system. You're incorporated into them by being deputized. And that I think still really exists today where many of us see ourselves um, or, or um, are are propagated in that way to say that we are on the side of police like we're joining the force by becoming crime fighters you know calling 911 on your neighbors like all the all those viral videos of the Karens or whatever um, but uh, okay okay uh, but it's uh, not only Karens but also Karinas and everyone else too that calls the cops on on black bodies or like the cholos on the street or whatever or the, or the, the vagabundos you know people that are just um, homeless you know, People call people calling the police, you know. So that's one thing that we see continue to be manifested in in, in the kind of social fabric um, today. And um, and the occupying force uh, to to put to, to somebody specifically that talked about it and articulated it was somebody like Malcolm X who talked about that um, um, in Harlem. The police were an occupying force in in Harlem. That their their goal was to brutalize and demonize and, and and um, harm harm the community as a way of enforcing the the uh, racial discipline of of the north of the north as well, right? Um, and and also to not foment rebellion, right? Organizing um, uh, with, with un, within the within the the black working class or the the black lumpen, right? For folks to not organize, right? To disrupt any type of organizing um, and to break up multiracial um, congregations as well right, the police in the South trying to stop uh, the creation of, of multiracial um, unions by, by tenant farmers like white and black farmers coming together, trying to stop that from happening and occupying the cities until the communists were pushed out, right, so the white communists were pushed out. Um, and yeah, so that's one thing. And then the second thing, the the um, the policing combo being a diversion, right, where folks were, the response is to say, well, blue lives matter, right, or like, you know, and you're right, it's 100% it's a diversion, because people don't, I don't think those people really care about law enforcement, what they, what they really are concerned about is demonizing the poor, and demonizing blackness, and brownness, and undocumented people, queerness, um, indigenous folks, that's what, that's what it's really about, it's really this, uh, it's, it's, uh, the way I see it is when it's being articulated by these folks, it has little to anything to do about law enforcement, because, a generation ago, these people were, um, their 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 parents were, um, you know, working class, usually working class, um, you know, uh, factory workers who also said, like, fuck the police, right? Because they were, you know, they were the ones who would bust down there, um, you know, pull them over at the bars or whatever, or, you know, get them in DUI, or whatever the case is, right, a generation ago. Um, and so they don't, I really don't see it being that they care about the police, is that they want to continue the the, the trope and also the, the ability for the state to demonize poor folks, black folks, brown folks, immigrants, queer folks and radicals. And we see this come out is because um, when they say blue lives matter. Um, as like a, as an art against it. It's really what it's saying. It's going back to that thin blue line that was articulated by um, Chief William Parker of the Los Angeles Police Department in the 1950s. And so he, he articulated this idea. And one of the very first speeches he made as police chief um, when he was appointed police chief in 1950 by the Los Angeles Police Department or by the Police Commission. And when he he was a, uh, he was a well-known anti-communist um, racist and also somebody who was, um, in particular, he was part of the John Birch Society, which was an anti-civil rights organization, a reactionary anti-civil rights organization that we can think about today as like um, like the Christian front or like, you know, these like pseudo- um, neo-Nazi organizations or proto-Nazi organizations um, or proto-white nationalists, I guess is the more, more appropriate word, um, that, that saw civil rights, um, and Chief Parker believes this too, civil rights as destroying the fabric of the white ethnic nation state that is the U.S. And so he, he, he argued and articulated that the police are the thin blue line between chaos and barbarism or sorry, between civilization and, and, and chaos. That's what he said, civilization and chaos. And um, he lumped in the mafia, civil rights organizations, uh, youth gangs and delinquents, um, people who were um, uh, trans and queer um, folks as well as um, as breaking the social fabric of like the Christian white uh, nuclear family of the, the ethno white nation state of the u.s that's you know still articulated today by white nationalists about you know when they read the documents of of the founding fathers who literally said that they were trying to build a um you know the a shining a shining city on the hill right for um for european civilization right they take that stuff to heart and you know they've they continued that so that's what i think is really being articulated there is is this is this um is this um is this Sticking really hard to that line of, of, of white supremacy within, within the U.S., right, as, as being it's one of its like primary functions of how the nation state works, and also of capitalism too, of, of being anti-radical as well, uh, being against uh, against socialists or communists or anarchists or anybody who's trying to make an affront to what's you know private property, as we've seen with all the calls to yes, like people literally cheering on um, militias going to places like Kenosha to protect property while also that 17 year old kid, you know, shooting and murdering two people. And being having a fundraiser with like, you know, with all these folks like getting almost a half a million dollars within a few days to support his legal defense. And so that's what I think the real conversation is. And and so the way you I think we redirect that, and the way we really get to it is to is to um, not walk that route with certain people. I mean, it's it could be because um, I've heard Dylan Rodriguez talk about this too. And I agree with him that you can put down all the stats you want, but it's not gonna matter. Like, um, or there other folks have said it too. Maybe it wasn't Dylan, maybe it was somebody else, but people have said this too. We can, the data is already there about this, then the US being um, racial disparities being a real thing, right, that the per capita death rate, mortality rate, um, um, cancer rate, right now COVID rate, um, police violence and murder rate is disproportionately for Black, um, Latinx folks, um, um, but also immigrant immigrant folks from all over the world, specifically from um, the global South who are in the States, um, as well as queer and trans folks, and in particular queer and trans folks of color, um, and also poor and impoverished folks, right? You can see all that data, but that's not gonna mean anything to folks because they have this line. So then I think the conversation is how do we talk about it where it doesn't become an argument between um, you hate the cops or you gotta love the cops. I think it's, for me, it's about talking about public safety. Like what really makes us safe? Asking that question starting there. What makes us safe? And and just defining safety and what it really means. And I think when you do that, I think it begins to change. I think that's where people can say, I I think there will still be some that say, well, what what means safety to me is a, is a a deputized person with a gun at every corner, and those are like I think people on the very fringes those are folks who are part of the militias uh, that want to you know see um, see like an ethnocide here in the United States, but there is a lot of folks who are being courted by those folks in a way that we talk to them, including people within the in the um, the Chicanx community in the in the larger Latinx community and, and, and other communities of color and other working class communities are being courted by these folks. you talk about what makes you safe like what actually actually brings joy um, and life to your community and when you start listing those things law enforcement is going to become you know very late in those things people will talk about access to parks green spaces access to a good paying job access to um, 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 these different things right Um, these uh, life supporting institutions or what what others have articulated and called the, the commons right having an actual commons where we can actually support each other and so um, when we do that, we, 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 we guide the conversation back to where it's supposed to be. Because honestly, too, the, even the conversation around police accountability, that's not really the goal. I don't think the goal is not to prosecute all the killer cops or even to defund the police. Is not necessarily the goal. That's a step towards building a rich and vibrant community that, that, um, that as abolitionists talk about, um, sees life as precious, that life is precious. And... Um And yeah, I think that's kind of where, where it circles back to. And and, and just one real quick uh, an aside, talking about the um, when people bring up the death rate of, um, of law enforcement, be like, all right, well, let's talk about the death rate of workers. Um, and the people that have some of the highest death rates, um, again per capita, but also even by by raw numbers, law enforcement is 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 not even in the top ten of the list of workers. You have um, articles by, um, just this year by Business Insider, right? Not, not a radical a socialist a newspaper. It's not the, you know, it's not some like anarchist blog. And they talk about the, the, the workers who are actually most at danger of being killed on the job are people like loggers, people who work in the fishing industry, airline pilots, people who work as roofers, people who work at, in construction trade and in, in the recycling trade um, and refuse, people who work as truck drivers, people who work as farmers ranchers um structural iron workers right you have all these other folks So where is where is the shirt for those folks and again it's not about lives it has nothing to do with blue lives it has to i think when you when we break that apart it's really about again the the demonization of um and 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 really towing the line of of these um of these folks who want to to um unleashed genocide or are totally fine with that of genocide happening here in the United States.
0: What I take from your conversation as like a line that I think for me is, is um, it's going to, it's going to ask me to think about things a little bit different has to do with the ways that we can think of the space of policing as employment. And that one is, I think there's a lot of energy there that can take us in a direction that most people um, may not be comfortable with. Because one of the things that I think about is that if, if we think about the, the task of policing as an employment position, for me, it still works because that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about police accountability as employment. So like, who do I talk to when the police took my property? You know, so there's stuff that has happened where police do a raid. Um, they literally take money, and then they're not held accountable. Or what happens when the police comes and they shoot my dog? You know, the point being is that if I make this an employment issue, it's like, let me talk to your manager. Let me talk to your supervisor. So there's a lot of there. But there's also something that is difficult to think about policing as employment and in fact um i'm not up to date on what happened but there were efforts to really push out police from discussions of labor labor unions in particular because they were saying that policing is as an occupation is anti-labor rights like we're not we're not all in the same so that the teachers the nurses the construction workers, the the welders, the plumbers that have their unions, and we stand together, and then the police comes and says, hey, I'm one of you. The conversation kind of has shifted in saying, maybe you're not, uh, because the times that we were out there advocating for a little bit more pay, you came and you hurt us to protect the owner. So I think that to think about policing as employment um it's gonna take a lot at least for me to really kind of reshift it but I find it um productive I find it actually quite um um fruitful because it allows me to think about something that um as a tool set may lead us somewhere you know may lead us to the things that we want because one of the things that I think we want is something you indicated it's like we want public safety. We want to be able to, for example, one of the things that I, a lot of us do and um, we self, we self-regulate and to use even the same word, we self-police so that when you're walking, you are, you've been so socialized that you say, do I look like someone that's a threat? And then if, if you were to ask me, Danny, what are you doing? Oh, I'm walking my dog, but Turns out that I walk my dog in the early morning and late at night. So when I walk, if I have a flashlight, I was like, make sure it's a really small flashlight. I don't want the police to think that I'm carrying a weapon. Why? Because I, I've learned my lesson. You know, I've learned it literally by being a younger version of myself, encountering police, by just being sitting in my, in my front steps you know, of my old neighborhood and that made me suspicious. So now as an older version of myself, I, I'm i doing some of these things, you know, self-regulating, going like, how does my body look to the police? Uh, are my neighbors gonna call on, uh, and report me because I'm walking at night, it's 10 at night, what is that person, am I suspicious? But ultimately all of that is um, stemming from something that I think we all want. We all want to feel safe. And maybe that's where the conversation I think can also take us is thinking about like, what does safety look like for different communities via the filter of race discourse? Because you brought up something that I think, um, uh, I don't think we're gonna get it. Uh, I don't want to take too much of your time to kind of open that whole conversation, but I would love to hear your thoughts, on uh, lay your point. And that is the way that you talked about when the police early on deputized people. It actually deputized whiteness, a whole community through the race race banner. And that created a sense of allegiance to the act of policing and the violence upon those that were not white. And when we see, for example, right now, this militia movement to supposedly kind of like squash the the uprising of these racial bodies these black bodies these brown bodies I think they are doing the same thing they feel an allegiance that if we support our police we're one and the same but I find that even more troubling because the police I think I mean I don't know I'm just trying to think about how police hurt poor whites all the time you know and why are they running to support something that if you're an employee and the police comes and cracks your skull because you're being a nuisance to the employer, why would you go around and support them? And that's where my question is right now. But um, I'm just kind of thinking about what you pointed out and, and and signaling something that I think is part of what we said earlier. Like how do we build a new conversation that does not get that, that does not get trapped into the binary of good cops or bad cops, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so first, to talk about the the ideas of employment, yeah, I think uh, I think that's 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 one of the lenses to look at. And when you do, when you begin to like look at that, you begin to see that law enforcement aren't are in fact not unlike they are unlike other employees of the state, other state workers like teachers, um, or um, hospital workers, nurses who work for like state hospitals, social workers, so forth, because they have they're protected by something called qualified immunity, that they're one of the only workers, if not the only workers, that are allowed to um, utilize a defense um, saying that they felt threatened and be able to um, kill somebody or maim somebody or harm somebody, and not have and, and it be impossible for somebody who was victimized or who was who survived that act of violence or even didn't survive it, they were murdered, and they are not able to take that individual to court um, in a criminal court proceeding civil courts. Yes, that's different, but criminal courts there. It's it's like the state is barring them from allowing that to do that because they have, they were added this thing called qualified immunity. And that's one of the things that people have been pushing for to try to, to try to um, take away because that, that, that sets them apart from every other worker because no other worker, um, you know, if you're discriminated against and you're, you know, going, to, as you see, like when you're, um, you know, every time you go, like I just recently went to, um, to a doctor. Um, so if you go to your primary care physician or you find a new one, you fill out all this paperwork and what the things that you signed, right, is that you have to, you have the right to contest any feelings of, of being discriminated against or if you're harmed or anything like that. Like you can um, you can hold the, the, the institution accountable or that individual accountable. Um, that does not happen for law enforcement. That sets them apart, um, and, it's, and it's, really, it's really because of the, the type of work and the, the, the roots of that work in which they're doing, right? They're, they're meant to, um, to engage in this type of violence and, and having this type of qualified immunity sets them apart. And I think that that gets to like the labor union question. I was part of UAW 2865, the labor union that represents um, um, the uh, teaching assistants, graduate student instructors, and also tutors. And and readers as well on on the University of California and back in uh, a few years ago, I believe it was 2016 uh, We passed a resolution to call on the AFL-CIO to disaffiliate from police, uh, disaffiliate the police unions within our ranks um, because we're part of the larger um, labor federation. And it was not met with any response, really. (laughs) And uh, just recently because of the George Floyd um, uprisings. Uh, that question was put again towards the AFL-CIO and they basically pushed back and were like, nope, we, um, we're we not going to talk about that. These folks are workers. And and again, you you go back to the history of the labor movement, those who broke the labor movement apart were law enforcement. Those are the people who are used by the company, whether they, and, you know, if they didn't have private uh, work, uh, private uh, security to go do it, their private goons hired by the company, they would uh, hire law enforcement to do this. So yeah, and um, also too, um, actually, creating some sort of um, um, thing, like right to actually be a worker producing something. Well, what are actually are they producing, right? They're responding to the lack of um, to abandonment, right? <laughs> to, to to the lack of uh, um, of production, right? Especially with industrialization law enforcement has become like a big piece of the urban landscape, um, even though they were part of it before. Um, but you could say that they are are really there with the absence of production, right? They're there to um, as, as many people have said, um, and after the 1970s, with the creation of uh, mass uh, – uh, the, the, the growth of the prison industrial complex, the growth of actual prisons throughout the United States, um, that they, um, they have been used to police the surplus population that are, that's outside of the new neoliberal um, – capitalist order that now runs our society, right? We don't have these ma- major manufacturing. We have the rust belt, right? We used to have manufacturing in the Midwest that is gone. So what do you do with now millions of workers who no longer have access to jobs to be able to survive, right? Well, what they did was uh, many people argue, Christian Parenti argues this too, that they learned from the, the rebellions and the, insur- and the insurgencies of the 1960s and 70s that the people who recruited the most of Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, you said the Brown Berets, the, the Young Lords, in Chicago and New York um, even the white Patriots uh, a white organization in Illinois um, that was that was um, doing work alongside uh, the Black Panther Party there they were um, organizing unemployed folks the lumped in right or people that were in low-wage jobs part-time workers um, or people who had just come home from prison themselves and they were the ones who were some of the biggest party members some of the people who were articulating um, and and holding lifting up the banner of um, of, of wanting to um, have a have a revolution in the United States and talking about socialism, and 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 as a response to that, well, if you have less if you have less people who are unemployed, you're going to have less of rebellions. Um, if anything, that's what the um, the the attempt has been. I think people would argue, and I, and I that's how I kind of see it too. Historically, since the 1980s, with the with the mass prison buildup and the and the racialized targeting of people, you begin to push people. Into these into these cycles of of surveillance. When you right, when you get into the prison system, you know we have 2.3 million people in prison, right? One in four people in the world is in prison in the United States, and even more than that, one in six people. And this this is a statistic I just saw. One in six people who are in, who are in a cage in the world are African American, are Black Americans, right? Out of all the work, out of all the people in the world, one in six who are in cages are African Americans. That doesn't that doesn't tell you something about the, the the work that um the kind of violence and say violence too but also too when we integrate the numbers nearly 40 percent of the people who are in prison are also white right so it goes back to that question you were saying why why do we see um a certain subset and that's that's the thing too when we when we when, when we kind of do a blanket uh am not saying that you're doing this but I think when when an analyst or people in on social media we talk about you know whites joining the militia movement it's a very certain class of whites People that are articulating and people that are pushing the propaganda of white nationalism are not white. They usually don't come from a white working class background. Um, um, If they do, um, it's it's from a it's um, it's usually not. They they don't usually find themselves in leadership roles. They find themselves in the in like the local grunt work of these white nationalist organizations or followers of people like you know because you know the people that are running Breitbart and all this stuff. They're like went to you know Ivy League schools you know um people like ben shapiro right he's you know he's like a big personality um within the alt-right and he himself raised, right, you know somebody who also went to like private schools and so forth and all the people in the trump administration and so forth that you know stephen miller went to he was at santa monica high school and, and then also went i think to went to the same school as uh Ivy League university as um as steve bannon and so you have um yeah you have these uh we have, a, I think, a subset within within the larger um, white communities of the United States that still are saying, "Well, we're not the criminalized whites. You know, we don't engage." You know, they have their, you know, like I, I think there's a book on the history of rednecks. as it's called. It's a it's this academic text from a few years ago. I haven't read it. I've only heard the author talk on on a little bit about their work on a on a on an interview. And there is this really big demonization around people who are, um, you know, formerly incarcerated. It's definitely in a different. It's a particular. It's, a, it's particular around whiteness. It doesn't, doesn't match up specifically with blackness um, and the way, um, the way you were articulating, right? That you had to learn because of the way you look and about even just sitting on the porch and being a threat to public safety by individuals in your community, right? Or even by law enforcement to be suspect because of blackness. And that goes back to the slave codes and to the, um, um, to the slave patrols. And then for the Southwest, it goes back to the vigilante communities of looking at and the anti-Indian um, and anti-native, um, you know, uh, cavalry regiments to like interrogate Native people and also Mexicans, who, um, you know, to know where they're going to basically give them a, 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 a to to have a amount of surveillance on their bodies at all times, right? And that's the and that that, that in itself is the problem, right? That you have to um, you have to learn. A certain way to be, right? You're talking about the things that you have to that you've had to be schooled on, um, to um, to ensure that you're the things that you have on your body are not mistaken for um, weapons or for guns, right? Having a flashlight that's not too big and so forth. That many um, many com- many white communities, if not all white communities, don't have to really think about in those same terms, especially being in places like here in Los Angeles or the, the, the greater LA area. So. Yeah, so we see these things happening, and and I know we um, we don't have time to kind of go into it the the last part you were talking about um, um, too much, but I think that kind of like any on that point that that uh, that the ways in which um, the knowing that the um, that the way in which the body has been identified in certain in certain ways that the body is identified as Certain bodies are being identified as criminals, specifically the black body, and also the the native or immigrant, you know, the immigrant brown bodies. And more recently, since the war on terror, the um, the Arab body as well, right? The 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 Muslim body or the Muslim, uh, you know, uh, way of way of being in the world. The mosque itself is now a site of surveillance um, and so forth. Or even uh, for queer and trans folks too, right? The um, historically as well. Um, about you know the vice squads of the 1950s have not really left us that you know queer and trans folks continue to be surveillanced and policed and brutalized and put in prison and so forth so um, yeah, I think that kind of goes goes to that social fabric um, where 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 the where uh, where many people I see online say this, and I think it's true that we have to not only. You know, if we're really being serious about pushing for public safety or for having a dignified humanity or life, seeing life as precious, we not only have to abolish the police and um, in its current form and the way law enforcement is right now, but we also have to um, abolish the the cop in our head, right? The one that says that there is a criminal element um, within our society that we have to eradicate because that only, you know, that's, that's that's a fast way towards fascism, you know. The criminal element that's destroying our society that's a quick way to get there so so yeah I think that's uh that's kind of where that last point brings me to
0: David I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts on this subject matter with us today
1: hey uh, thank you Danny I appreciate it
0: you have just finished sharing a conversation with historian educator community organizer David Chavez we spoke about the issue of police violence in particular how The present movement to hold police accountable and even consider alternative ways of operating and framing the agency of policing it's not necessarily a new trend but it can also be considered a historic process a conversation that can connect the present expressions of police violence upon black and brown communities as one that is rooted in the legacy of state-sanctioned violence and state-orchestrated racism. I also take away a new perspective of considering how we can address police violence as it connects to labor movements, placing the context of police officers as employees, in this case, employees of the state, the government, uh, but nonetheless, employees gives us new conversations, one that allows us to put pressure of accountability as well as looking at what are the circles of solidarity that are necessary to transform our communities to a much safer and equitable place. I want to thank you for listening in today. You've been listening to Daniel here on The Dear Please feel free to send me your thoughts, questions, any feedback you have to the following email. Comments at dreport.org you can also check out our webpage dreport.org to review past segments stay safe stay strong join us again next week